You're listening to Season 4 of This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. TNL is a production of Young Clergy Network, and we're hosting our last national conference in California this coming October 17th through 19th, 2019. If you've been waiting to join us at one of these, this is it. Check out more details over at yccwest.eventbrite.com. Today on the podcast, we're hearing from Reverend Melissa Tucker, Associate Pastor at San Diego First Church of the Nazarene in San Diego, California. As always, thanks for all you do for Young Clergy, and thanks for tuning in. Jack, and I'm here with my guest, Reverend Melissa Tucker. Melissa is the Associate Pastor at San Diego First Church of the Nazarene. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's so great to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? So my parents grew up sort of nominally my mom, religious. My mom, nominally Catholic. My dad, deeply in the Methodist Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they met, they got married three months later. They uh, had me nine months after that, and wow. they were like 21. So it was like, bam, 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 major life changes at a mm. very young age. Mm. And as is not too surprising, first couple years of their marriage, a little rocky, a little hard. Sure. And they were living outside of Phoenix. And uh, my dad's coworker could see some of the struggles of my parents' uh, early married life. And mm. so kept kind of chipping away at my dad, asking him to come to this house church plant basically and eventually my parents gave um they were definitely in a time of like disarray and um yeah desperation to save Mm. their relationship and our family life and so um brought me i was two years old and it was to this house plant with the six couples Mm. and that was the church of the nazarene and you know we might say that they like rededicated their lives um to much more seriously a commitment to Christ. Mm -hmm. And we were like on the team from that day forward. And my parents were um, a bit in different places with their enthusiasm for it. My dad was like, let's become missionaries and go somewhere abroad. My mom was like, your role, let's figure out what we want, really want to do here. Yeah. But for me, all that I can really recall is growing up in the kind of the wraparound care of the church, no matter what church that we were a part of. Um, my parents, when I was six, ended up sort of meeting in the middle of my dad's like missionary ambitions and my mom's like not so sure about any of that. Um, met in the middle by moving to a Christian children's home in Mesa, Arizona. And I was raised basically there. Wow. Um, so doing parachurch work is really as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was during that time. Um, that my dad felt a call to church ministry and we moved into that and being a church pastor's family. But that whole time, always making it a priority to be not just its tenders of the Church of the Nazarene, but really deeply invested. And so it's the church that I know, it's the church that's raised me pretty much from my memory from day one. I love that. So talk to me about how you got from there to feeling like you were called to be a pastor. Yeah. So not a straight line. Um, 
And I, you know, as early as I can recall, and I think that this is genuinely, you know, genuinely part of who I am. Um, I was like exhibiting the behavior, even as a really young kid, like three years old of being a teacher, like mm. classic, like line your dolls up, give them homework, teach them, grade their <laughs> fake homework, you know, and do that whole thing. And because we were like a ministry family, like people abound around us with need for childcare and free mm. babysitting. And so I was like babysitting from like age 10, like mm. way too young. And then teaching preschool, Sunday school, probably way too young. And then certainly as we moved into church work, um, there was just lots to do. My parents mm. planted a church. And so um, I just kind of gravitated toward children. And so it was like everything about my young life was just like this big shining beam of light toward be a teacher. Right. And so that was really an affirmed pathway. Mm. Um, I certainly like loved, loved being a part of church life, like in a, in a probably more than your average kid or teen way. Mm. And, and certainly like loved going to the events or playing on music worship team or being NYI president. Like it was, yes, I loved like the activities and the features of it, but there was something deeper than that. Like I wanted to keep going on discussions about scripture or I was mm. reading like theology light on the side when mm. other kids were reading, like, I don't know, babysitters club, you know, like it was just, it was, um, there was a deeper interest there mm. um, in asking bigger questions. I really cared about like the polity or the structure of the church, even though I wouldn't have known the words like poly doctrine. Like I took an active interest at district assembly and stuff like that. So it was like for like a 14 year old, let's say I was far more invested in some of the bigger questions of church life and religion and spirituality mm. than my peers, but it didn't stick out to me as something to necessarily pay attention to. It just was like, this is what we do. Like we're, Nazarene family who, you know, my dad's in ministry and my, my parents are, yeah, um, bringing us here all the time. Like, this is what I should be thinking about. I didn't see it necessarily as like a passion yet. Mm. And so I really just like committed hardcore to this pathway of becoming an elementary school teacher. Um, it was the major I did not question when I started college. Um, I have to say my classes did not light me up. But mm. I just told myself like, well, that's because I'm not teaching yet. And mm. so when I get my own classroom, it'll be fine. Um, did my credential. Oh, 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 I should pause to say when I was in college, thanks to some friends who were in theology classes or sociology classes or political science, I felt like I got kind of a, a secondary education through what they were learning and through our conversations. And we dove deep into big questions of, injustice and why the world is the way that it is and what the church is and isn't doing. And mm. I was so drawn to these questions, but I was like in my elementary ed major where we were learning to make like paper mache masks, you know? So yeah. I was like, cool, I will need that someday. But I really want to talk about like the wealth gap, or I mm. really want to talk about um, what the church should be talking about. Um, yeah. And so I got um, definitely more activated and aware of um, justice issues and global issues when I was in college. And the church I was attending was in the, um, the inner city part of San Diego. I, and I, get, I, I took my, my, my desire to be a good teacher mm -hmm. and kind of fo focused that on doing that work with underserved communities in the 
city areas, the grittier, the better. Mm. Um, I was a Spanish minor and spent time outside the U.S. teaching to like hone that Spanish precisely so that I could come back to the city and be a better teacher and resource for my students and their parents. Mm. So I really felt like real focused on that goal. And um, goodness, I mean, I was in my credential program and had (laughs) a really tough set of master teachers. Not that they were tough on me, like what you'd want, like rigorous, like they were bad teachers that I had to report to the union. Like Mm. it was just a, a really like, learning by what you'd never want to do kind of experience. And so that whole time I'm like, yeah, this was not what I wanted, but when I have my own classroom, it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Then I got my own classroom, struggled the first year with feeling into it. Mm -hmm. But that was when I was abroad and I was like, it's because I'm not back in the States and this is just really hard. Like I've, I bit off a lot with this first year, get back to the States. It's just because it's my first year back in the States. Oh, it's just because my school's in program improvement. Then I moved Mm -hmm. schools. Oh, it's just because this is a charter. And I will say that it was, Oh, goodness. Um, Near the end, it was April, um, near the end of the final year of my teaching career that I was in my classroom. It was a Saturday morning. I was the only teacher there. I was always the only teacher there on Saturday. I was always the teacher there earliest, stayed latest. Mm. And I just am breaking down. And I'm like, I cannot do this career. I'm crying myself out of the car every day. Mm. I am not finding a tremendous amount of life and energy and joy from this thing that I actually know I'm good at. Mm. And so it was this like first um, big clash of and crisis of faith for me as an adult. I mean, I Mm -hmm. certainly had had different moments of deepening a commitment along the way, but this was the first like, oh, shoot, I, I have thrown all into this. I thought this is like, calling on my life. This seemed to have been affirmed by like literally everyone in my life. And Mm. I don't want to do this. And so this was just that, that like kind of crossroads moment for me of like, I've been beating myself up that I don't love this. I have been trying to figure out how to make this work, but I don't think I'm supposed to. Mm. And I remember looking out at the window (laughs) at the, this like, I remember exactly like where I was sitting in my classroom and looking at the clouds and the trees and talking to God and just saying, but I have great health insurance in this job. <laughs> it was like, it's like this weird clarifying moment of like, if that's why you're hanging in there, it's probably not worth it. So I was like, okay, great security. Is that really what's going to keep me in this job? Mm. Um, no, that's not how I live my life. That's not what I trust in. I don't trust in like security of the insurance market. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then this like deeper kind of utterance from me of, but I like telling people I'm an inner city elementary school teacher. And I was like, hmm. And it was just that immediate conviction of like, pride is probably also not a great reason to stay in this. And then it was just this moment of full surrender. Like, all right, God, I'm yours. I've told you, I've given my life to you a long time ago to do what you will with it. I don't know what you have next, but I'm willing to leave. And it was just this clear in the way that, I don't know, that the spirit speaks to you and you know, it was Mm -hmm. step away. That's all Mm -hmm. I got was step away. Um, and so I did not sign my contract and it was this tremendous, just, um, wild for me, who's somebody that's pretty calculated and careful and strategic leap of faith, um, to zoom ahead in the storyline, um, took a job in the spiritual development office at PLNU at Mm -hmm. Quinlan Nazarene university Mm -hmm. that summer working with a Mexico ministry program, that I had 
loved when I was a student. Um, ended up getting hired for that, but then they shifted my job description upon hire to assist basically all the campus pastors in that office. And wow. um, after that whole first year, I was like, this is temporary. This is like a one-stop time, like just gonna like work here, get a paycheck for a year, figure out what to do, go back to school. But I was really feeling compelled to like stick it out with this Mexico ministry program. And somehow, talk them into letting me work on that exclusively because there really needed to be more attention on it. Mm. And then for the next like seven and a half years of my life, um, led Mexico programming at a school that is 20 minutes from the border, um, doing work that incorporated elements of certainly social justice education, um, international mission work, spiritual formation of my participants, um, running camp ministry, mm. preaching, writing curriculum, doing cross-cultural education, like all of those things, which equal that uh, pastor, right? But I was very much um, reticent to say I was a minister. I would mm. say I did ministry. And for some reason in my mind, that bifurcation felt really important and protected mm. me. And um, it didn't really occur to me um, for many years in that role that I would want to formalize my commitments to ministry or become a official clergy with the Church of the Nazarene. And to be honest, some of that was, I was sort of for a bit of time there, like foot in, foot out with the Church of the Nazarene. I uh, was mm. still very, very dedicated to, to God, not really questioning my commitment to Christianity, church going, but had been burned and hurt by a Nazarene church that I was a part of. And I mm. needed a break. And my dad was at the time ministering in town. I was now working at a Nazarene school. I knew to go to a Nazarene church would mean they would, hello, Melissa, come in and work with children or come in and do X, Y, Z. And so um, had what I think is a wonderful sojourn time of attending a Catholic church and an Episcopal mm. church and a Presbyterian church. And in that time discerning and listening all along for when would be the invitation back to if that would ever come back to my home base, Church of the Nazarene, mm -hmm. that, that yeah. came. So I think some of that clergy question was, well, who, with who, you know, who's my, who's going to be my group of people that authorize that. Mm -hmm. um, but even deeper than that, honestly, was I grew up in a minister's home. I was all too familiar with the pressures and demands of being a minister. Um, I was deeply terrified that formalizing my commitment to the church through ordain, ordained ministry would sour my faith, which was the most precious and important thing to me. Mm. Um, I equated professional Christian ministry with workaholism, um, had seen all too many church scandals and ego and vice and all of those things for too long. Um, and so in my head, even though it's not very rational, if I wasn't a minister, I just did the work of ministry. It was like mm. this protection. Yeah. Um, so in 2009, I'd led an international trip to Rwanda. And one of my co-leaders was Jared Callahan, another minister in the Church of the Nazarene, dear friend. Mm -hmm. You may know him. And um, somebody said on the trip, a student said, hey, Mel, how long have you been a minister? And I said, oh, no, no I." that's so nice of you to say. I'm, I'm not a minister. I do the work of ministry, even though, side note, my title is campus pastor. Like that is in my title. So clearly a little bit out of alignment, but yeah. um, I tell this student like, no, no, no. I just, I just do the work of ministry. I'm not a minister. I, I'm not formally ordained and 
you know, I want to respect that that's a whole process that I haven't entered into. I don't want to equate myself with people who've done all that. Mm. And Jared, in true Jared fashion, like, I, I, he threw something at me or slammed his hands down or he got up and did something that indicated he was like not happy with that. And he was like, Tucker, you need to get yourself figured out because you are hands down a minister and a gifted one at that. So whatever you got to do, figure it out because we all know you're a minister. You just mm. don't. Ugh. So that was like a real big come to Jesus moment. Thank you, Jared. Um, mm. And I did sort myself out and realized that was honestly the moment when all of those latent sort of subconscious fears about what ministry might mean and what formalizing my commitment to the church might do to my faith or my Mm. social life or whatever. I mean, yeah, even fears of I'm, I'm, I'm unmarried and thinking that's going to like, you know, put the nail in the coffin in my dating life. Um, if I'm like ordained, Mm. And it's not even like I was like needing to get married, but just like, well, that feels like that closes a big door. Um, so there was just a lot under the surface. And I feel like Jared calling that out made me deal with mm. the, see those fears, name them, address yeah. them. And really it was an invitation to greater intimacy with God to be able to share those things and to mm. say, well, <laughs> um, if you're leading me in this. If, if I, I don't know how I got to this place in my life that w- is so such, it's such a good use of my skills, my gifts, my prior experience. I know this is where I want to be. I have had so many moments of clarity of like almost being outside myself, watching the camp ministry I was running, watching mission work and knowing this is like, so where I'm supposed to be at. Like, I need to trust that you're going to keep me going down this pathway. Mm, And, um, so started my, um, my formal course of study ordination path then, um, had already been underway with a master's of theology. So a lot of those course units were done. Um, Mm. so kind of kicked that up a bit. Um, I was also in school for nonprofit masters. So trying to juggle all of those things and make that work and ended up getting ordained in 2016. So it took Mm. a bit of time. Um, after about nine, after the nine years of working at the school and attending San Diego first church, um, learned that the associate pastor job was opening up Hmm. and it was, I don't know how to explain this Brit other than to say there was like a bolt of lightning straight to the depths of my soul. That was like, that's your job. Hmm. And I was like, no, no, no. Like I, God, I was not so sure about Church of Nazarene. Here I am. I was not so sure about formal clergy. Here I am. I really don't want to do church work. Oh, man. And that was, that was really the like final frontier, like this terrifying mm. um, unknown out there. I loved my university work. Felt like that was, that was my sweet spot. And yet... I knew, and I have to be honest that for about two years, God had been sort of grinding me down. Like, mm-hmm. uh, consider this, or when I'd be in a church, let's say in Tijuana, um, watching one of my closest friends give a sermon, there would be this like little moment of like, I kind of want to do that. And then, <gasps> no, lock that down, you know? And so it was two years of like, like an inkling of church work, maybe being in the future. And then when it was like, this is your job, um, I had to kind of face it. Like we were at another moment, me and God of like, am I going to say yes to something that utterly terrifies me? Mm-hmm. Um, said yes, six years ago to celebrating my sixth anniversary at the church. And um, again, in the way that God 
mysteriously works, it has been the absolute right best thing for me to step mm-hmm. into. It's such a good match for um, how I'm wired and what kind of things I think about. And it, I get to be a utility player who knows theology. And that's a really fun place for me to be. So mm. there's sort of the, there's sort of the journey. Well, tell me about this place that you've ended up in. What, what do you do as, as an associate pastor? What does that look like? Yeah. So my job description is quite broad. Um, we're a, we're a mid-sized church. We're not huge. Um, we are unique. Uh, every church is unique. So that's nothing, not saying anything, you know, terribly insightful, but it, we, the uniqueness is for us mm. is that we have like 950 people on our membership role and like 300 who are there on a Sunday morning gotcha. and the midweek population of kids and teens generally represents families that we will not see on a Sunday morning. So we have mm. this like pretty big reach in the community, a lot of trust with kids and teens programming. Um, we're next to an educational institution. So there's an inordinate number of people with higher ed degrees, which is mm. interesting. But also, we're right next to Ocean Beach, which has the highest concentration of the homeless population in San Diego. And that we certainly have members of our community who are not housed. And there's everywhere in between on the education spectrum, everywhere in between on the ideological spectrum. It is I, I can't imagine a more ideologically diverse church than ours. Mm-hmm. Um, extreme conservatism, extreme liberalism, that uh, solid representation in every decade. Mm. Um, a lot, like I indicated before, a lot of people who would associate with First Church say this is their church. We don't necessarily see them all the time. Um, and I think that's in part because of the school affiliation next door. Mm. Um, and so given that, um, we care, our, our kind of like responsibility list, our care list is quite large. Mm. Um, and so uh, some of my duties are what you might think like a senior pastor would do. Um, and our senior pastor D is like the Dumbledore of the Nazarene world to me. He is a fantastic mentor, um, teacher, pastor to me, boss. Um, D primarily is concerned with certainly carrying the preaching load. I do preach, but he carries the, the majority of that load. Mm-hmm. Lots of real estate stuff when you share space and property with a big entity like the school, um, you know, budget stuff, managing staff, th- those big pieces running the board. I do, gosh, if we were to do like a business comparison, like chief operating officer. So, mm. um, kind of watching out for some HR stuff, denominational compliance, government compliance, but then in terms of programs, pretty much anything that involves a volunteer and anything adult ministry, I'm mm. doing that. So that could be, I, that could be, missions and social justice stuff, that's discipleships, the small groups in Sunday school, that's running the worship services, men's women ministry stuff, assimilation, young adults. That's a huge chunk of my mm-hmm. assignment. Um, pastoral care and counseling certainly mm-hmm. help with that load. And it's wonderful to get to split that with my boss mm-hmm. um, where you know, I'm female, he's male, he's 20 years older than me, he's married, I'm not. Um, that just brings a really nice richness and diversity to what we can offer our people. Mm. Um, so yeah, overseeing sacraments and sacrament preparation. So those would be like, that's like the net. Like I kind of just say, if it's not kids or teens, then I'm probably doing it. Yeah. That's like the shorthand way of saying kind of what my mm. job is. Yeah. That's great. I love that. 
Um, can I ask you about what it's like to be a, a pastor in a world of pastors that are usually married? Um, Ooh, you sure can. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. I thought you were going to ask uh, about being a woman, which mm. would be also lots of fun to talk about. Yeah, you and can talk about that there. too. We can get there. Um, and I think being an unmarried woman is like, you know, interesting and complex. Mm. Um, yeah. Thank you for asking. Seriously, thank you for asking about being single. Um, I don't know that I... I'm going to try to answer this honestly. I mean, I don't know that I know anyone, at least in my age, I'm 41, mm-hmm. um, who is single and a pastor, which is saying something. So it's, um, I mean, maybe there is, and I'm just missing them. I mean, I know many in their 20s and some in their early 30s. Okay, I got one. Thought of one. Um, it is a married world. I mean, it's yeah. not just in the church, but mm. it's a married world. There's like tax breaks for being married, right? It's like, it's a luxury to live with two incomes. Um, there's discounts for family stuff. I mean, it's just, there. it's, and not even just like the perks that come with it. It's like, mm. it's what you do. It's even though we're getting married later as a society, um, and it's so much more acceptable to travel on your own and mm. live on your own and all of those things. It's still like the norm thing that you do. Like mm. you, and there's still this conception that you're a grown up when you check the boxes, get married, have a kid, buy a house, have a career. Yeah. And the things that we still celebrate in society at large like the rites of passage are all centered around family life. Like mm. you get the wedding shower, you get the baby shower, you know, get the anniversary parties. Um, so all that's true in broader society, all that's true, like of the whole world. And then in church, it's like on steroids, right? Mm. Like it's, it, there is such a preference for the family unit mm. and thinking about having couples serving together and and it's it's been a really interesting move for me to go from church attender to church employee Mm. and to try to guard and watchdog over that um in the way that we message events opportunities worship services so that we are not being excluding yeah. of people without a partner. Mm. And it's not just people like me who never got married. It's the people who are divorced, the people who right. are widowed, the people who are in marriages where their partner does not attend or mm. there's a lot of tension and pain. Yeah. Um, that's a large chunk of people, but mm-hmm. we, and it's, it's, I think it's just across the board. It's just an, a, a way that we have come to run church life that privileges couples and people with kids. Mm. Um, and I think that we know that some of the lifeblood of our churches is keeping people there with children, just to be honest in like a very business sense. Those are the people that are probably going to attend for a long time. They're going to hook in because their kids are there. They're tithers. I get it. You got to cater to that, mm. but it's also church and it's yeah. supposed to be a place that's literally for everybody and everybody yeah. gets an equal place at the table. So I, I'll play this out with a practical example. Um, we decided that it was like, highly, not just unfair, but like wrong for our children's 
pastor, uh, children's leaders, and main volunteers to like never be in church because they are leaving after the opening music set. Mm. And so we created like a month of Sabbath for them. And that's the month of August. And there's no children's programming except for the nursery. And for a couple of years, that was called family church month because it was families sitting together. Mm. And I had to just interject and say, I get it. I get that we are wanting families to attend in a family unit. Um, but what you are doing in that messaging is giving an, just a very subtle message to someone like me that that church month is not for me. And you know, there was some pushback, like, that's not what we're saying. We're just saying it's for like families to be together. And I'm like, but if you call it family church month, um, it just, listen, it, it sounds like it's for families, right? And it, was, took, it just took a bit of time for that to be understood. And so we just made a subtle shift. It's church family month because we're creating a different unit. We're yeah. creating brotherhood and sisterhood that are not biological lines. We are creating grandparent relationships and parent relationships. And we're being aunties and uncles to each other's kids in this new, beautiful remade family unit. So church family month. Yeah, that's getting at what we want. Um, and so um, I think, I think there's also like nothing sort of more intimidating and scary than walking into a church as a single person. Where are you going to sit? Mm. Who are you going to sit with? Who are you going to talk to afterward? That awkward yeah. eight minutes. Mm. Um, if you don't know people, what you're going to do. So as a, so that's just like attending church single, but also being a single pastor. Um, my goodness, that's a whole different podcast. I could talk to you about that forever that, um, yeah, like when you go to the pastor and spouse retreat and you're the only person without the spouse and mm. it's just, it's just odd. I don't feel ostracized necessarily. I mean, couples like to hang with couples. So couples, this is like a bit of a message. Like, don't be so close-minded about that. Like include yeah. your single friends. It's fine. It's all fine. Mm. Let us hang out with your children. It'll be good for them. Good for you. Good for me. Yeah. Um, so there is a bit of that, like, it's hard sometimes to find your social in. I'm a pretty social person, so I don't struggle with that as much, but, but it's just, it's just a weirdness, mm. um, where you are feeling like the only one or like one of two. Mm. Um, and so it, it's that situation where then it's what happens often for us as females in ministry, where you're advocating for your group, you're trying to represent your group, but so many people cannot relate to the experience that it feels like you're just bouncing off the wall. So if I try to speak into the pastor spouse retreat, for example, on my district, there was only the price for couples or couples that wanted to stay in the same room, like friends. And I'm like, what about if you're not in a couple? I don't want to pay that uh, double. You're making yeah. me pay double. Um, right. And just like, there was like, but it's pastor and spouse retreat. I'm like, but I don't have one. So yeah. it was like, listen to me, but it's like, I just feel like it, it takes like, four times as long to try to mm. explain or express what it's like to live in my shoes. Mm. I would say on a personal note, the hardest part about it is that um, this work is so rich and beautiful and deep, but also taxing and hard yeah. and sad. And you mm. enter into the life stories of people and you've got to hold all that really confidential. Mm. And so um, as I've said before, you know, honestly, just someone who can hold me while I hold the lives and stories of others would be really, really nice at the end of a particularly long day. And so mm. 
feeling like I have supports, I have people, certainly have my community that, that takes care of me, but not that consistent go-to, that person who's got a meal ready at home, person who's like, you're doing great work, you're going to get up and do it again tomorrow, just has my back, not for me to dump all the confidential stuff too, because I can't do that, but um, who's just like the day in, day out person to track with. I yeah. miss that. Yeah. I miss that. And have to really work hard to make sure through therapy, spiritual direction, consistent meetups with friends, I'm getting that sense of being tracked with. Because I think mm -hmm. this role, you have to have that. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. What advice might you have for a 20-something or a 30-something going into ministry who's single? Um, mm -hmm. What would you want them to hear from you? Oh, that's really good, Britt. Um, I feel so fortunate that um, not only did I attend First Church for years before I was invited into that application process and I was known, mm. um, but I, I want to shoot straight. I think it's going to be hard a bit yeah. to get hired as a single person in a mm. job that's maybe a higher level of leadership, like as an associate or a senior pastor. I think as a youth pastor, young adult pastor, children's pastor, I think that there's a greater sense of openness or conception for a single person taking that role mm. because I think there is more okayness with people who are younger taking those roles, Yeah, which should not be. Mm. <laughs> um, but I just think I'm shooting straight. I think be prepared for a rejection and no's, and that makes me sad. Yeah. Um, so have some tenacity, some grit, know that it's not you that you're kind of fighting an uphill battle and blazing a new trail of being mm. a single person in yeah. a role of whatever level of leadership at a church. Mm. Um, because the, I, I mean, even my sweet dad the other day was just talking about like some church someday would be so lucky to have you and like a husband and kids. And I'm like, dad, I, that's not a guarantee. Like I'm pastoring now. And he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It was just like, like this default. So you mm. just got to know you're fighting against the default. Yeah. So get a backbone, get some grit, be okay with getting no's, even though you don't have to be okay with it. Just like, no, that's likely going to happen because you don't fit the, the mold. Mm. And that your ordination interviews are going to be harder. Really? Be harder. I, 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 uh, Tell me about that. You know, you, you get to take your spouse into your ordination interview, right? Mm. Um, I don't know. Is it that way on your district? But it's that, it's that way on ours. Um, you take yeah, your spouse. Yeah, and um, I think that's pretty standard. Well, I don't have that. So I don't have anybody that's a bearing witness to how I'm treated or mm. questions that are asked. I don't have anybody that's a character witness and reference for me in there. Um, you know, there's, and it's so normal. The thing is like pretty much everyone walks in with the spouse. And when you don't, I don't know how in a system like ours that that has this really kind of strange, cool, but strange thing of taking your spouse in with you on something that's super professional. Yeah. <laughs> um, like you as the single person miss out on the benefit of them being there, but you also like, why is that the benefit? And what, and, and you then are different. Yeah. You know, my, my single, dear, dear, dear single friend, she's married now, but went in for her ordination interview and they didn't remove the second chair. And she was like, thanks for reminding me that I'm walking in here without a person. Mm. And why can't we take an advocate in? Why couldn't a single person take like professor or a dear friend, a mentor? Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, my ordination experience was difficult. I think we maybe we'll just leave it at that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that some of it was you're looking at a, you know, they're looking at me, a female who's unmarried, who presents, I think, younger than I am, in part because I'm not married. And I think that that's conceived as younger mm-hmm. and trying to co- convince and compel them, like, I can do the job just like anybody else. Sure. And in fact, can show up to the job in some ways that maybe a married person or a person with children maybe cannot. Yeah. I remember Paul, Jesus, anybody? So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I would want to real talk to my single, you know, colleagues in this work who are younger. It, it is going to be harder. Mm. And you've got to know that and have realistic lens for that. Mm. Um, it's not all hard and drudgery. And the great thing is, is that you have a little bit more time than perhaps your married or parenting colleagues to have a fantastic web of relationships. So lean into it, mm. build it. You need it, need it, need it, need it. I have a dear friend that is like my, I just call her my NAS wife. She mm-hmm. is, she's in her late twenties. So we're, our age is a little bit uh, disparate, but at we're not on the same district, but same region. So at regional events, we sit together. Aww. We go to the workshops together. Yeah. We, we, we have each other's back. Mm. I have like this inner circle, core circle of people who do ministry work and who do not do ministry work at all. Mm. Part of the Church of the Nazarene, never have been to the Church of the Nazarene and everything in between. And I have to have that core of support and I have to put in the work to keep that community alive and thriving Mm. for myself because you cannot, 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 and you should not, should not do this work without that. It's just Mm. too hard, too draining. Um, Yeah. Too, too big and overwhelming on certain days to do that Mm. um, without that backbone of support and therapy or spiritual direction or something that keeps you humble, that helps you with the transference and the projection that comes at you as a minister, Mm. sorting out what's your issues and what's your parishioners issues. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a part of a group that meets weekly that's led by a therapist. So it's a therapeutic group, but it's all ministers and it's ecumenical. Mm. It's ministers of different denominations. Oh my goodness. I, I, that thing will keep, that's preserving me in ministry probably more than Mm. any other sort of relationship that I have. Um, So finding, finding whether they're like clinical groups like that, friend groups, regular connections, and then your Sabbath. Gotta, 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 gotta have a Sabbath because as a single person, you don't have a kid waiting for you to get home to feed them. You mm-hmm. don't have a spouse who's like, hum, hun, you've been at work for like 10 hours today. Mm-hmm. You are the guardian of your time. Mm-hmm. You are the person who takes care of your schedule. Yeah. So tend it well and take for real seriously that like from creation story to the Ten Commandments to Jesus's life and example, Sabbath is no, no joke, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's no joke. Don't be a ministry robot. Don't be the hero. Take your vacation. Stop working. Turn it off. Don't check your email at home. Mm. Stay fresh so you can come back and keep going because no one else is going to guard your time. Okay. Mm. Those are my things. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Okay. I might come back to that, but let me flip the question first. What would you want the church to know about their single pastor? Your single pastor, like I just said a minute ago, so I'm going to weave this together, is um, the guard of their time, but so are you. Mm. So that like brings tears to my eyes a little bit. I'm trying to tap into why that is. Um, 
probably because I'm at a church that really, really does help guard my time. Mm. And I'm a person, I'm a two on the Enneagram. If there's anybody out there that loves the Enneagram, I'm a helper. I'm a giver, the befriender. Turning off is like not a mode I'm used to. Mm. I get a lot of joy and reward from doing and giving. Um, I love to work. So the off switch has been something I've had to discipline myself to just do because I know mentally it's good for me, not because I'll ever like feel that I'm running out of steam and I'm like, off the charts extroverted. So I'm a little mm. bit of a strange breed, maybe that way. But I think a lot of pastors are like that. So yeah. um, I was lucky enough to land into a church that has a sabbatical every seven years where my mm. boss hawks over whether I've taken my, vac- my weeks of vacation or mm. if I'm in the office on the weekend, why. Um, but what I, so I feel like my church is exceptional that way. What I would love for the church to get and local yeah. churches to get is your single pastors need your reinforcement that it is okay to go home mm. and that you would honor their tight knit relationships as their family relationships. I always mm. tell people I am married to my friend group. They are my collective spouse. If people could see them as that, then you would honor that I've got, I've got a coffee date or a dinner date at 6 p.m., that I need to get to just like you would honor if I had to go home and relieve the babysitter. Mm. Right. And so, um, authorize them taking their break, um, stepping away from work, being off. Don't ask them to do more just because they're single or be the one who comes and locks up things or give them the like late night, weird weekend responsibilities. If that's getting laid on your single person, rethink what you're doing in your programming or yeah. I don't know, hire, hire some people that can help with setup and stuff. I, I don't know, but you've got to get creative. Don't lay it on your single people. So that would be, yeah. and, and ask them, keep them accountable for how mm-hmm. they're using their, their time. I think that would be huge. Um, maybe also make sure um, if there's ways that your church can, well, make sure they're getting paid fair. And I think there's a, there's a tendency to privilege people who've got a wife or a husband or kids at home. Yeah. That's everybody deserves to be paid the same. Maybe if there's ways to add perks, like offsetting the cost of counseling or a spiritual director or mm. classes or something that um, helps to build in that net, that social net. That's really important. That mm. uh, professional net. That's really important because you're aware that single people sometimes get left out of the mix. So yeah, this would be a few, few of my messages for the broader church. Thanks for that. I like, I like those a lot. Yeah. Um, so tell me about what Sabbath, I mean, you're talking a lot about Sabbath. So what, what does Sabbath mean to you? What does Sabbath look like for you? Yeah, it's funny that I'm talking a lot about it because anyone who knows me well would say, that's like the discipline she struggles the most with. It's true. It is like, I'm talking about it because I got to talk myself into it. Mm. Um, I have a pretty ridiculous amount of energy. And like I've said, I love to work and go, go, go. But Mm. um, I, I got to take part in this really incredible thing called the Minister's Candidate Workshop Weekend. And it's something Mm. that PLNU puts on for our region. Maybe other regions and districts do this. Um, But you take like five psychological assessments and personality assessments, come in for the weekend. Um, You go through some group exercises. There's certainly preaching on 
life of minister, there's self-care and spiritual discipline stuff. You read all these dismal stats at how bad ministers are with like everything, like yeah. having friends, um, mm. having addictions, man, it's yeah. real dismal. Uh, but there's also like a time where you get to sit with a psychologist who's reviewed all of your material test uh, results, all of your 360s that all the people that love you that turn these in, you have to have like person you've worked for, person who's worked for you, a good friend, a pastor, fill out these like 360 evals. It's incredible. Wow. So they have all this data on you and you come in mm. and my, my guy, Roy, kind of changed my life. He, I walked in, he was like, you're doing good. You're like self-aware, you're in therapy, you've got, you've got some of the important supports in your life. But here's the deal, Melissa, you're off the charts, extroverted in every, I've never seen somebody like so consistently hundred percent in that category. Mm. And you're hundred percent in the self-disclosure. Like you don't really value privacy. Mm. And these two things will run you into the ground. You are not going to last as a minister if you don't get these two things under control. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, tell me what I have to do. And he was like, with the extroversion thing, you're never going to feel like you need a break. Never. Mm. Until you're like, weeping in the corner like I don't know why nothing's working it's like well because you didn't turn off for way too long and so mm. he was like you have to just discipline yourself and tell yourself it's time I, I build in days when you're done figure out your your days that you're not working like your weekend whatever that looks like um take your vacations you have to program those things in because your body isn't naturally like an introvert's body will crave that Mm. and you don't have the family that slows you down. I mean, if you had a baby at home, you'd be home at nights, but you don't have that. So like you have to build it in. So yeah. I, um, took his, I took him super seriously cause I didn't want to crash and burn in this mm. job. Um, so I take my weekend Friday, Saturday, I need two days in a row. That feels super duper important to me to have enough of a break so I can come back fresh on Sunday morning. Mm. Um, and if I end up working on one of those days, which you inevitably do in ministry, church work, yeah. um, there's lots of stuff on Saturdays, then comp it, take it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, I take my vacations seriously um, and plan those out beginning of the year. What am I doing? How am I using those weeks? Mm. Um, I really try really, really, really hard. And my boss has been a great example of this. Don't do work at home. That's mm. really hard, I think, as a pastor. And when oh, your yeah. friends are people who also attend your church, like to go to a certain function, you might end up working at the function because you're mm. like, oh, 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 I'm counseling someone suddenly in the corner over here. Or, oh, we're talking about your Bible study needs. Got to be careful of that. So if I'm not really willing to enter into a workspace, then I have to be careful to monitor my conversations when I'm, quote, off, you know? Mm. Uh, it's like a balance of um, where's my energy? When am I willing to work? Um, not checking email when I'm not there and, and making people frustrated that I didn't check my email. You know, they're like, mm -hmm. I emailed you two days ago. Yeah, that was my day off, but I will get back to you. Yeah. You know, it's being okay with letting people down um, because I think people do expect you to sort of be on and pastor. You are a pastor 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but you can't be working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. So yes. Yeah. So it's just, um, building those things in and being intentional about them up front because the job will never give you like, there's a day I showed up and there's nothing to do. At least I have never, ever had that. So it, <laughs> um, 
I could work nonstop. This is like a job that never wraps up. Never, <laughs> never, never. And Sunday never, ever doesn't come. So mm. it's the freight train that you've got to keep going along with all your other programming and relationships. So um, yeah, be off when you're off, plan your vacations, make a weekend, whatever those two days look like and take them seriously. That's great advice. Um, what is your favorite part about being in ministry? What's your favorite part of what you do? Ooh, I love that question. Okay. Most favorite. I got like four different things went to the front of my brain. So I got to pick my favorite. (laughs) Okay. So pastoral work is so mm, varied. There's so many things that are part of it, right? It's like Mm. something like 41 jobs in one. Like there's so many different things you're doing all the time. Mm. And I think for me, it is the sacred, like insane privilege that I have of getting to walk along the highs and lows of people's lives with them. That people mm. still, in this day and age, still would choose to invite me in to a deathbed, a marriage altar, yeah. a moment of confession, mm. um, a huge faith crisis. Mm. I'm even thinking of like a very elderly gentleman that came in and was like, I think I'm getting mail frauded. And I'm like, you are like, it's just like, look, here's my mail, read all of it and help me figure this out. Like it is, um, goodness. I think about, you know, I do, I, I concentrate a good chunk of my energy with my young adults and young adult ministry. The things that college students face, this is the time where you usually have some big fallout with family, faith, where you might come out of the closet, where you get Mm. pregnant. Um, there questions like, what do I want to do with my life versus what my family wants me to do? I mean, there, there are these crossroads that people are at all the time and that they would say, Hey, pastor, come into this space with me. Know me in this very intimate way. Know these details of my life. Let me trust you with these storylines that I'm not going to tell maybe anyone else. And then we ask together, where is God right in this moment? Where's God? Not in some vague, like, you know, um, way, but in a very specific way, where is God for you right now? What is the next right thing for your life that God might be asking? Mm -hmm. And then to like, you know, metaphorically, or sometimes literally arm in arm, like go in that direction together. And then to Mm -hmm. see the fruit that comes when you say yes to God, when you respond to what God is doing, for me to get to watch that and watch the fruit that comes, uh, whether that is a big, you know, life transformation or a mini transformation and that there always is, I mean, people certainly come to me with good and wonderful stuff, but it's the harder stuff that um, when you're walking with people to get to see that God really does make all things new, Mm. really does. It is, um, I don't know why everyone wouldn't do this with their life. Like, I just feel like I'm so grateful and privileged that God asked me to do this with my life and I Mm. can hold it. It's not too heavy for me to do that. Um, And it gives me so much life to see when people continue down the pathway, they invite me, invite community in. And when new life, when like a plant comes up out of the concrete in a situation that feels really dire, desperate, hopeless, man, I love that. And I Mm. feel like I'm cheating. I'm putting like a second answer into this question. Um, my 
other like connected tertiary favorite thing is that I get, I've done young adult ministry now for 16 years, right? Like 10 at the university, six at the church as part of what I do at the church. Man, there's nowhere. I feel like you see that more than with people like 18 to 23. Yeah. Um, and to see people coming into their own, coming in the sense of who God has made them to be, mm. saying yes to God. And um, when that might be a lot of other no's to other things. Oh, that's just so, that's so cool. That's yeah. so cool. So, um, yeah, that's probably my favorite thing. There's a lot of things I love, but that's probably my favorite thing. That's great. Um, so the last question I ask everybody is, and you kind of touched yeah. on this at the very beginning of the interview, but the last question I ask everybody is what inspires you to stay in the church of the Nazarene? So, so what is it that's keeping you here? Yeah. There's a good little handful of things. Um, I touched on it. Yes. In that my first answer is, you know, the Sunday school, Jesus. Like, I feel like God was like, come home, come back. Mm, yeah. Um, and I said yes to that. So I think in a very real sense, it is um, obedience that mm. um, God said, return home. And I was very much like a, a felt sense that God was like, come home. Yeah. Um, so off of that, it's my home. You know, this is the, this is the church that, that um, gave me, that shaped me, gave me my sense of faith. Even though I was raised in a minister's home, probably because it was the work that my dad did professionally. We didn't do like mm. a lot of devotionals in the home. We didn't have a lot of like spiritual chats at home. It was my church people that did that with me. Um, mm. My volunteer youth leaders and the people who led the music team I was on or took me to different events. Like it was and that, that I babysat for and then I'd stay and chat with them. Like it was these people that poured in my life who were in the church of the Nazarene. And so you know, the gifts of the Church of the Nazarene, some of the stuff that we do the very, very best are things like camps and NYC and these regular gathering, like we called it, um, it's Elevate now, like regional activity days where you like go yeah. and do your quizzing or, or quizzing for that matter. Like yeah. there's all these like built instructors, caravans that the Church of the Nazarene has done, does do really, really well to keep you connected to people over time. Mm. Yeah. And those people are people who influenced me and made me into who I am. So I feel like in much like I own my femaleness or that I am white or that I am goodness, you know, cisgendered, whatever. Like I also am Nazarene. It's like mm. an ethnicity. And even if I left it, I would still be nazed, you know, like mm -hmm. it's a lingo, it's a people, it's a culture that I just am. And so because I felt God saying, come home, be, be, be in this thing. Mm. Um, then that compels me to ask, well, how do I operate within it? How do I stay in it? What do I give to it? What do I take from it? And, you know, and then lots of other answers sort of emerge from that, that I mm. love uh, that this is a group of people who began as people who wanted to make sure that, the people on fringes of society, those who would be considered marginalized, outcasts, not fit for church, whatever, were invited in. And that the very name of the Church of the Nazarene was referring to Jesus himself being an outcast and being from a city mm. that no one thought anything good could come from. Yeah, I love being a, a, in, line, in the great line of people who were thinking about who is not included and mm. getting them included. And I want to preserve that so badly in our church. Mm. I don't think we're doing the best job at that. 
So sure. there is like the prophetic word and call and that continued hard work of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, Obvi, love that we have included women from day one. We have like regressed. Mm-hmm. So come on church, let's be better. But I'm like, that is our heritage. And we've, we've created that heritage out of our very committed, um, out of, out of our strong commitment to faithfully interpret scripture Mm. and to do that communally and contextually and thoughtfully. And I love that we're not a fundamentalist church Mm. and we're not biblical literalists. And we understand that the Bible is our guiding document. It is an inspired word. It is also temporal. It was written at a certain period of time. And that that means we got to be really, really careful and critical about how we do, how we think about it. And Mm. so like our honoring of women for ministry comes out of that and I love that. And I want to mm. keep calling us to that. Yeah. Um, I also kind of love that it's a church of the middle way. Like it's not really going to go to the extreme. It's not, well, it's an intention, you know, it's intention is not to live in the extremes, but to kind of stay with this Wesleyan commitment mm. of this via media. Like where can we bring extremes together? And that is all about the inclusion piece. Like, we'll come on in, come yeah. in with your extreme views. We are going to like, in our most like theoretical best form value and listen to what people are bringing Mm. and see where we can come together and also what binds us that is higher or greater than our perspectives, views, ideologies, but also how does knowing you and your story and your ideology shape me and how do I shape you? Mm. Um, That our commitment to sort of being holding the tension of the middle, super important to me. So those are just Mm. some of the things that continue to inspire me about the church of Nazarene keep me going. Yeah, it's great. Um, if somebody wants to kind of continue the conversation with you or ask you about something that you've talked about, where can they reach you? How can they find you? Yeah, I would love to say Facebook, but don't do that. Um, <laughs> I am super bad at that Facebook messenger. I get that it is so helpful, but it's like an in- email inbox I never asked for, you know, and I, I just never took it. So, mm. um, you could maybe leave something on my, on my wall. Mm-hmm. That's what it's, yeah. But, um, I, and Instagram, I'm, I'm like on it, but I, I would just say straight up email. I'm old yeah. school. So like texting would be ideal, but I probably won't give my number. I could give my number out. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm open to that, but, um, well, you can email. give us your email. So, yeah. Okay. Church email. So if you look up like San Diego first church, Melissa, you'll find me. Um, the email address is kind of clunky and funky. So I won't say it online cause it won't make sense, but just look it up and you'll find it please email me. My goodness. I, young clergy, old clergy, every clergy have, like I've said earlier, have a network, but particularly young. You're going to stay in this game for the long term. You need, you need people who've got a little bit or a lot bit before you. So please, 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 please hit me up. That's great. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be on the show. Of course. This has been so much fun. Thank you for asking such good and important questions, Brett. It's been a delight. Oh, I'm happy to do it.